You are listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Hey Central, well I don't know about you, but I am so excited for June the 7th. We are regathering at 8, 9, 30, 11 here in person. I hope you're excited about that. You know, God is just continually to move in and through our church. I am so proud to be a part of this Central family. You are an incredible church to pastor. I just want to thank you for all the encouragement, all the ways that you've been above and beyond in your giving, and how you've gone out and served our community. And you know, this week I've also been a part of trustee meetings with the International Mission Board, and, to, and, and this week uh, we have uh, appointed 59 new uh, missionary units sitting literally around the world to reach people for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you, through your generosity, are a part of that. So thank you so much for you being you, and now we're going to get into God's Word. So if you have a, a Bible, hopefully you do, turn to Esther, Esther chapter 3. We have a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to be reading these verses, but we're going to be actually going through almost three chapters of material. So Esther chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse number 1. The Bible says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. You know, every story has a protagonist, a good guy, and an antagonist, a bad guy. It's been said that every good story has a hero and its villain. If you watch Disney movies, which our family's been watching a lot of them, thank you, Lord, for Disney+, Plus. Uh, you see that every Disney movie has a hero and a villain. Uh, when we're able to finally go back to the Magic Kingdom, you're going to park uh, in one of two places at Disney, in the hero's lot or the villain's lot. This week I did a very scientific uh, study, some research on Facebook, which is a very good place to get answers to questions that maybe you don't even uh, ask questions about at all. People just give you their opinions. But I asked him this week, uh, what, who is the worst, the best worst villain in Disney movies? And so here are the list of the names. Cruella DeVille, Scar, Jafar, Ursula, the Evil Queen, Gaston, the Big Bad Wolf, Edgar in the movie The Aristocrats, King John in Robin Hood, Captain Hook, the Queen of Hearts, and Maleficent. Now, there were others that were given that were, we'll call honorable mentions, but those are kind of the worst. I think the worst of the worst is Cruella DeVille because her name has devil in it. Well, anyway, all I can say is, is that I get emotionally invested in every Disney movie I watch. I don't know about you, but when you see that moment in the movie where it seems like the villain, there's always this moment where the villain 
they're winning and they look like they've got the upper hand and everything that is bad is about to happen and the hero is messed up or or is fallen or broken. It just seems like in that moment I get so involved, but then at the end of every Disney movie, I am right there. I am defeating Scar. I am getting rid of Ursula. I cannot wait to see uh, uh, that, uh, that Jafar is defeated. I am all into this moment and probably you are as well. Well, in the book of Esther, we're having this moment where the main antagonist of the book is introduced. His name is Haman. Haman is the guy in the story that you love to hate. He is the, the villain in the story. And I think that to a degree, he's a picture of a greater villain, a greater enemy. But, but as we read chapter three, the entire chapter, things look extremely serious for the people of God. It, it is scary because what you just read, what we just read together is Haman's plan to destroy all of God's people. Now, if Haman is successful in destroying all of God's people, the Jews, with no Jews, there's no Jesus. And with no Jesus, there's no hope. But yet, what, what it seems as if the enemy has the upper hand, we know by reading the book backwards that God is working. And so the book of Esther tells us that we have a God who is working behind the scenes through what even appears to be random events on the scenes working out His good purposes. God is the hero of the book. And so as we get to chapter 3, here's what I want you to learn. As we read in chapter 3 and even the rest of the book of Esther, we see that the schemes of Haman are no match for the sovereignty of God. So that's what our sermon is, the schemes of Haman and the sovereignty of God. So let's walk through here in the very first point, the schemes of Haman. In chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, after these things. That's a time marker in the book. And and it's really fast-forwarding about four to five years later. And it points back to the end of chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, we get this little story, which is a very important part of the story, where Mordecai, who is a Persian official, is sitting at the gate. Now, the king's gate was the place where the official sat, and it was kind of where business was done and, and transactions were made. And while he's sitting at the gate, he uncovers a plan by two guys, Bigtham and Teresh. Don't name your kids either one of those two names. Yeah, Hey, hey Bigtham, come here. No, you don't want to do that. But these were the king's eunuchs. These were like the secret service to King Xerxes. And they were very close to the king. And you know what I found? This is true in my life and probably in yours. The people most likely to betray you are the ones closest to you. Well, that's what happens here. Well, Mordecai, under he hears of this plot that they're going to assassinate King Xerxes And um, he tells Esther, the queen, and Esther then tells the king that Mordecai told her what was going on. The king does an investigation and he finds these two men guilty and he hangs them. Now, probably he was he crucifies them. They, they, They die a very painful death. And this was put into the royal records. It was told that Mordecai is the one who is the hero. Now, Persian kings were known in that day to lavishly reward those who proved loyal to them. But as you read in chapter, at the end of chapter two, there is no reward for Mordecai. And when you get to chapter three, it's as if it was completely forgotten four or five years later. But what we do see is that Xerxes is making some moves. And what he does do is he promotes Haman to be second in command. You would think maybe the natural thought would be is that Mordecai would be promoted, but no, this guy named Haman. Now, Haman is an Agagite. We're going to talk about that. And it tells the name of his father. And and let me just give you a little Bible tip. There are a lot of hard words in the Bible. I don't know, as, as I'm reading even the book of Esther, they are extremely hard. Let me give you a tip. Here's how you can do it. 
Read them fast and read them loud. And here's why. Because if you read them fast and you read them loud, no one is going to know the difference. As a matter of fact, if you read them with confidence, everyone's going to assume that you're a genius and that you nailed it. So there's your little Bible reading tip. No one will know the difference. So nevertheless, what we see here is that Mordecai saves the king and the king doesn't promote Mordecai. He promotes Haman. And, and I think the reason is because Xerxes is so self-absorbed and so consumed with himself that he doesn't even think about Mordecai's act. So in chapter two or chapter three, Haman here is now second in command of the government. And Xerxes, here's the funny thing. Xerxes makes a law that when Haman walked around the palace, when he went around town, people were to bow in honor to Haman. Now, what kind of person was Haman? If, if you know anything about traditional ancient honor culture, even to this day, it is customary and normal for people to bow before their superiors. It's just something that people do. You always bow to an elder. You always bow to someone who is superior to you. What kind of a person? How obnoxious must Haman have been for the king to have to make a law for people to bow down to him? Well, what we get in the story is that Mordecai doesn't bow down. Haman walks by. Everyone is falling on their knees. There Mordecai stands, giving him the stink eye, just kind of looking at him. And, and it's in this moment, in verse number two, three, and four, that the tension of the story rises. Everything is now going to change. At the beginning, Haman doesn't really pay attention, but the king's servants do. And they ask Mordecai, they say, hey, why aren't you bowing down to Haman? Why are you not following the king's command? And you're doing this day after day. And they're coming to Mordecai day after day and saying, hey, why aren't you bowing down? You got a problem with Haman? And Mordecai says, I'm a Jew. I've been meaning to tell you guys for a while, but I'm a Jew. Now, that had to have been shocking because up to this point, Mordecai hadn't told anybody that he was Jewish. And it's kind of like he's the guy, I think Mordecai is, is the guy that, that is, he's, he's like the guy maybe that you know who drinks a lot, who parties a lot, who, who cusses a lot, who tells dirty jokes, who sleeps around, and then suddenly has some terrible event happen in his life, and then all of a sudden he says, I'm a Christian. And you're like, what? You're a Christian? What kind of Christian are you? Well, I'm a hypocritical one, and we have a huge denomination here in America. I mean, that's basically what Mordecai is saying here, is that I'm a Jew. Now, up to this point, he's told nobody. He's, listen, Mordecai wears no Star of David necklaces. He doesn't have a WWTD, what would Torah do, bracelet on. There's no evidence of him praying. There's no evidence of him reading scripture. There's no evidence of him going to the synagogue. He doesn't sing songs. He doesn't make sacrifices. The dude eats the king's food, which was non-kosher. He eats ham sandwiches with bacon on it. He doesn't defend or protect Esther. But in this moment with Haman, he says, I'm going to draw the line. You know, I don't care about all the other things, but I am not going to bow down to Haman. And the question is, well, why? What makes this such a big deal? And it's because of who Haman was. The Bible says that he was an Agagagite, an Agagite. Again, I tried to give you that example of when you don't really know how to pronounce the word, just say it like you own it and just own it there. So he was an Agagite. And what that was is, if you know anything about biblical history, is that uh, he was a descendant of King Agag, who was of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the sworn enemies of Israel. They were the ones who attacked Israel while they were wandering uh, in the wilderness. And you find that story in Exodus chapter 17. And these were the people that God says, I, listen, you, you curse my people, I'm going to curse you. And so they went out to defeat Israel and they were defeated. And what, what God's going to say is that you're, you're going to get yours. And so later on in 1 Samuel chapter 15, 
King Saul, who was the king of Israel, his job was actually to deal and bring judgment to the Amalekites. And instead of doing what God commands, he actually spares and, and one of the per, spares some of the people. And some of the people, one of the persons that he spared was this guy named King Agag. Well, King Agag has descendants, and this now is how we get to Haman. And from this moment forward, there is a bitter rivalry, a historical, racial, spiritual rivalry between the Amalekites, the Agagites, and the Israelites. And, and here's just one little, just a tidbit: failures of the past to obey God at times have future consequences. Don't just think, well, you know what? I don't have a consequence now, so I'm good. No, some of the sins that you committed, consequences come later on and maybe even come to your children and grandchildren and they haunt you. Well, nevertheless, we see here that Haman, in verse number five, finds out that Mordecai is not bowing down to him and the Bible says that he is filled with fury. He is enraged. He feels disrespected. Everyone else is falling on their knees before him, but Morty, oh Morty, he stands up. And, and why is it so infuriating to Haman? It's, it's, it's for this reason, because... Haman, despite his power and his position, didn't get the respect and the approval that he thought would go with it. Later on, you're going to see in chapter 5 that he has a conversation with his wife and he, he recounts all the riches and all the, all the stuff that he has. But in verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, but you know what? All that is nothing until I see Mordecai the Jew destroyed. Well, the reason why Haman is the way he is and why he lets just one person disrupt him is because he was a proud man. He was very proud. He's the personification of pride. C.S. Lewis gives a definition of pride when he writes in, in his writings, and he says this. He says that pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. In other words, pride makes you concentrate everything around you and in your life on you, and you don't feel and you don't do anything unless you feel good about yourself. Lewis continues and he says this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. That's where Haman was. He just wanted to be better, to be stronger, to be more loved, to be more celebrated than anyone else. Well, he didn't get what he wanted, and so Haman gets upset. But in verse number six, the Bible says that he finds out who Mordecai is that he's a Jew. And to this point, he probably just wanted to kill Mordecai, but now he wants to do something far worse. He wants to destroy all of the Jewish people. See, that's what pride ends up doing. Pride is always deadly. Now, it's easy for us to detect pride in others. It's hard for us to detect pride in ourselves. But pride is essentially what made the devil the devil. And Satan's MO is to always destroy God's people. And the reason why is because Satan hates God. And so he wants to hurt the people that God loves. And so all throughout the history of the Bible, you see that the names may change, but the script is the same. Here, Mordecai is, uh, or here, Haman is not just satisfied with killing Mordecai. He wants to commit mass genocide. He wants to kill them all. I'm not going to, you know, basically, Haman says, I'm not just going to kill you, Mordecai. I'm going to kill your entire family and their family and their dogs, too. They're, he's going to kill them all, wipe them all out. Here you see in this moment, he is a crazy, sadistic, self-centered supervillain. So 
He has to, he can't do this on his own. He has to get help from the king. So we don't have time to read all this. You can read it. But in verse number seven, he's going to go to the king. But before he goes to the king, he has to consult with his gods on when is the best time to commit mass genocide. So the Bible says that it was in the first month, the month of Nisan, the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, that they cast purr. Okay, this is going to be important later on. Purr is the casting of lots. So when they casted lots in this day, literally it was the rolling of the dice. And so what you have in this moment is you have, uh, you have Haman trying to find out when should I kill all these Jews? What should be the good date? And instead of just looking at a calendar and picking it himself, he gets his magic eight ball out. And day after day after day, he says, is this the day? No. Is this the day? No. Is this the day? No. And then finally they get to the 12th month in which he says, all right, the 12th month, that's the, that's the month in which we're going to kill and annihilate all the Jews. So he then goes to the king and he's going to present his case before Xerxes to get rid of the Jews. But he's a smooth operator. In verses 8 and 9, you hear what he does. He tries to manipulate King Xerxes. And every time I read this, I think of that moment in Aladdin where Jafar goes to the sultan. You remember he has that little snake there and, and, and the sultan just kind of repeats words after words. Well, that's kind of what Haman does in this moment because what Haman does is he plays to Xerxes' weaknesses. And so he comes to them in verse number eight and says, there's a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples and all the providence, provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's law so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Three things he appeals to. First, he appeals to the king's pride. He says, there's a certain group of people that aren't doing what you say. If you're the big king, you got to sniff it out. Second is he appeals to the king's self-interest. These people are not profitable for you to tolerate. You should get rid of them. Three, he appeals to the king's greed. I'm going to give you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, before you kind of think, well, what does that look like? According to the Greek historian Herodias, who talk, who wrote about this empire of Xerxes in Persia, 10,000 talents of silver would be at the very minimum half of the annual revenue that the king would bring in in taxes every year, at least half. It would be 300 tons of silver. This is a lot of money. And so what he does is he is appealing to the king's greed. He says, you hand me your signet ring and I'll do the rest. Now, the reason why he brings up this thing about the signet ring, you'll see in verse number 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Here's why that's important. The signet ring of the king was the signature of the king. It would be put on every official document under the direction of the king's authority. So if you had that stamp that was stamped by the signet ring of the king, that meant that this had the full authority and power of the king. It was the signature. So what Xerxes does is he listens to Haman. Haman appeals to him with shallow logic and flimsy answers, and he doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't even mention that these are Jews. He just says a certain group of people. Xerxes doesn't do any kind of investigation. He is lazy. He is greedy. And what he does in this moment is he gives his power away. 
And so at the end, in verses 12 through 15, Xerxes, with Haman's help, or Haman with Xerxes' help, sends letters out to all 127 provinces and translates into every language. They go on Twitter, Facebook Live, Instagram Live, TV, newspapers, the whole nine yards, that 11 months from now, all the Jews in the empire would be, would be killed. And that if you, uh, if you are able to help with this cause, you can plunder whatever the Jews had. It sounds like Nazi Germany and Hitler. And so the Bible says that when the news spread around that this was going to happen, the city of Susa went into chaos. Why? Because there were people that loved their Jewish neighbors. And in this moment, at the end, at the very end of chapter 3, you have this weird, funky moment in which the Bible says that the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What is everybody doing when they hear the news? They're freaking out. They're panicking. What is Xerxes and Haman doing? They're sitting on the back porch, drinking Coronas, toasting each other, and having this, I just, in my mind, there's this big, evil villain laugh. Ha, 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 ha. And there it ends. Even though they're laughing, they are no match for the sovereignty of God, which gets me to that point, the sovereignty of God. We've seen the schemes of Haman. Now we're going to see the sovereignty of God. And this is kind of where I want to see what's the application. So there's kind of two points of application here. One is this. The lies of the enemy sound logical, but have horrible consequences. If you read this text and you read it, you're thinking, Xerxes, how ignorant, how foolish are you to give your power away to an evil dude like Haman? You know, it's like when you watch these Disney movies. I want to keep going to this illustration. You, you have people, and I want to go back to the Sultan, listening to Jafar. You're like, Sultan, you're an idiot. And in this moment, that's kind of where I see Xerxes. You are willing to destroy all a people group, have them murdered for money? I mean, what kind of person are you? And maybe some of you are saying, you know what? If I were the king, I would only listen to people that I trust. I would never give my power away. I would never give control to someone like Haman. But I want to be very honest. We have an enemy that is just as conniving and convincing as Haman. And you know that this enemy every day asks for the signet ring of your life. Every day he wants to come in and he appeals to your self-interest. He appeals to your selfishness with shallow logic and empty promises. We have an enemy that comes in and here's what he says. If you just give me the signet ring of your life, I will satisfy your longings and I will fill your cup up. Here's what Satan will say. He'll say, you know what? God can't take away your pain. You need something stronger. God, God can't be all that you need. You need something better. God's approval is not, is not enough for you. You need someone else. And here's what I found. Satan will offer his best 30 minutes for the rest of your life. Because he knows. And see, what he'll do is he will get you to trade your integrity for a laugh. He will get you to trade your purity for a moment of pa uh, passion. He will get you to trade your future for a high. You know, I'm, I'm a student of history. And uh, during the Vietnam War, we, we know that the, the Viet Cong uh, was, they, they used a lot of untraditional uh, tactics in warfare. They used a lot of mental warfare, a lot of emotional warfare. But what you may not actually be aware of is that one of the things that they did uh, is they provided drugs 
for the USGIs. They would, they would give drugs, of, you know, big drugs of marijuana, cocaine, heroin, all kinds of LSD-type drugs, and they would give them to the U.S. soldiers through, through their people on the ground uh, that looked like civilians to get those uh, U.S. soldiers addicted because their thought was is if they were addicted to drugs, then they wouldn't be very good fighters. And a lot of the GIs, they, they were looking for escape from the just the very horrors of war. So they wanted to get them addicted so that they can defeat them. And, and in 1973, 21% of the U.S. soldiers in Vietnam were addicted to heroin. Thousands of soldiers returned back to America addicted to drugs and broken. And that's why many of them came back and they were really messed up. Not only PTSD, but they were also addicted to drugs and their lives were, a lot of them were ruined. That's what the enemy does. He acts like he's your friend, but he's not your friend at all. Because what he does is he hides the hook. Well, here, Xerxes doesn't ask any questions. And you know why Xerxes doesn't ask any questions? It's because I believe he wanted to believe Haman. And I think also he wanted to believe that there would be no consequences to his action. We're the same way. See, here in this moment, Xerxes thinks that he can give Haman control of his life, control by giving him the ring, and he could get his 10,000 talents and there would be no consequences for his action. And the reason why Xerxes feels this way is because Haman intentionally leaves out the consequences for this decision. But just because Haman doesn't tell the consequences doesn't mean that there weren't any consequences. See, there are always consequences every time we give the signet ring of our life away. You know, if Haman had his way, Xerxes would have lost his wife Esther. Mordecai would have been hanged and publicly shamed. And the Jews would have been permanently annihilated. We have to understand that when you sin and when I sin, there are always consequences. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that we are to be sober-minded, we are to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is our enemy. He wants to steal from us everything that is good and lasting in our lives, and he will do whatever it takes to destroy you. Why? Because he hates God. And because God loves you, he hates you. And he's a murderer. He wants to ruin your life. And so don't listen to the lies. It may sound good, but I'm going to guarantee you it will never be good for you because lies may sound good, but they lead to horrible consequences. But yet, in the midst of that, we see something else in this story. And that's the bigger picture, the sovereignty of God. And what I want you to see in the second point of application is this, is that the plans of the enemy cannot destroy the purposes of God. See, as Haman was sitting there uh, drinking his Coronas with King Xerxes, he was celebrating his success. He was confident. He said, there is nothing that's going to stop the plan. But he had no idea what was going to happen next. See, he thought that the stars were in control of the dice and that his gods picked the best possible day for the mass genocide of God's people, but he was wrong. Why? Because Proverbs 16.33 says this, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. See, the Lord is the one that caused the lots to fall far enough away to give him enough time, 11 months, to orchestrate his rescue plan for his people. If you read in chapter 3, verse 11, Xerxes says to Haman, The people, do with them as seems good to you. See, the king thought that the people were his people, and he could do whatever he wanted to with them. 
But they were not his people. They were God's people. God made promises to his people. He had a plan for his people. Listen, Xerxes may have ruled, but God overruled. See, that is his hand of providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. As I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, God's providence is best read backwards. See, we have the ability in this moment to know the end of the story. We know the end from the beginning. And so even though Xerxes believed the lies of Haman and gave Haman the signet ring, God was not scared, nor was his plans or promises stopped. See, we know. Now, right now, maybe just let's take a time out for a second. In your life, as you're going through things, things may seem dire. You may have listened to the lies of the enemy. You may have made some bad decisions. And in the middle of that, you're like, my life is over. There's no way that there's any hope. But yet, we don't know the entire story except for this one thing. If you're a Christian, there's always a happy ending because God is your God and you are His people. And I think this gives me hope. As I'm reading here in Esther, Mordecai doesn't know everything that's going on. Esther doesn't know everything that's going on. Haman doesn't know, nor does Xerxes. And this story gives me hope because there are times that I have listened to the lies of the enemy. There are times that I have sinned against God and that there are consequences for my sin. But God can take all of that, even the consequences of my sin, and turn it for good. Here's what I love. God is not stopped by my stupidity. His good purposes are not spoiled by, by my inability to obey Him. His sovereignty is sovereign even over my sin. Well, we see this in Mordecai and Esther's life. I mean, both of them compromised. We, we talked about that last week. And yet, in God's providence, they were at the right place at the right time to be used by God. God works all things together. At the end of chapter 2, we saw that God brought Esther and Mordecai to the, very, to the very place where they were the only ones who were able to rescue the king. And in chapter 4, which we're going to look at later next week, they're going to be the only ones that can rescue the people of God. What the enemy means for evil, God can take and make for good. And we're going to see this play out. Now, I know this is a little extra long sermon, but stay with me. In chapter 6, as you turn there, you're going to get more insight of how God is going to turn the scheme of Haman on its head. Now, in chapter 5, Haman builds this huge gallow that he's going to hang Mordecai the Jew on. He wants to do it the same day that all the Jews are killed. He builds this gallow 75 feet high. And he's going to now come into the palace. He just built it that night. He wants to walk in early in the morning and see Xerxes and tell him his plan to kill Mordecai the Jew. But then chapter 6 happens, and the Bible says that on that night, the king could not sleep. It was, he was sleepless in Susa. And then in that moment, Xerxes asks for the book. And this book was the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And these books were read before the king. Now, I just want you to think about this. If you're the king of all the things that you could do to help you sleep, of all the sinful things, he chooses to get the book out of memorable deeds and have it read to him. And while he's there getting this great bedtime story from his servants, he is retold the story 
of Mordecai that happened four to five years prior in which Mordecai saved his life from assassination. And Xerxes is like, you know what? Mordecai, the Jew, he saved me from Bigtham and from Teresh. What did we do for him? Because remember, Persian kings were known to lavishly reward those who were loyal to him. And they said, you didn't do anything. And he's like, dude, we got to do something for Mordecai the Jew. And so in the morning, he gets up and he says, hey, who's out in the courtyard? And at that time, Haman, who comes in strutting in, I mean, this guy can strut sitting down. He comes in, he walks in there, he's got a big plan. The king brings him in. And before Haman can say a word, the king says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman's like, dude, that must be me. Because there's no one better than me. And so Haman says to Mordecai, or Haman says to the king in verses 7 and nine, through 9, that guy should get the royal treatment. And, and so like Haman's mind is like, what's all the things I've always wanted to do? What's my bucket list? Because here's the moment in my life. I think that he should get the royal robes put on him. And that he should ride on the king's horse, which would be the position of a conquering king. And he should wear the king's crown. And the most noble official in the king's court should lead the horse through the town, proclaiming the greatness of this man. Now, let me give you just a little side note here. The robes of the king were very important. When a king put the robes on someone, it was more than just giving them a high position. You remember when Pharaoh put his robes on Joseph? He partakes in the king's position. Jonathan gives his robes to David saying, I love you and you should be the king, David. So in this mindset of this day to put the robes, to put the royal robes on someone is not just saying I'm honoring this person, but it's saying I delight and love this person. So Haman's like, this is what I want. He's always wanted the king to love him, to delight in him. And the reason why, not necessarily because he loved the king, is because he wanted everyone to know how great he is. He wanted everyone to know how special he is. And so as he is sitting there, he's like, all of my dreams. I mean, I was last night with Jiminy Cricket and we were singing When You Wish Upon a Star. And here I am. I show up to the king's court and now is my day. The king looks at him and says, Take Mordecai the Jew and do that for him. His jaw drops. This is the most astounding of all reversals. This is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for Haman. The words he longed to hear, the man whom the king delights in, now he has to speak. It is a complete reversal. Now he is going to have to get the royal robes on Mordecai, put Mordecai on the king's horse, get the crown on Mordecai's head. And he was supposed to be the one that led Mordecai down the streets, telling everyone how great Mordecai is. Mordecai was the guy who was about to be trampled in the dust, and now he is exalted. Haman, who thought he was going to be exalted, is now going to be trampled in the dust in the role of a servant. Haman's scheme to get rid of Mordecai the Jew has been foiled by God. Haman wanted to be exalted, but now he's brought low because you know why? That's the universal law of God. The way down is up and the way up is down. Now, think about this. While Mordecai and Esther were sleeping, God was moving. 
Whose plan was being executed here? Who keeps the king from sleeping? Why does the king decide to read that night the book of remembrance? Why did Xerxes forget to reward Mordecai for four and a half, five years? Why does the king fail to mention mention the name of Mordecai to Haman? And why did Haman think that this was all about him? Answer, God. He was working. See, the schemes of the enemy are no match for the sovereignty of God. And the same is true in your life. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. Don't believe that you need someone or something else other than God. You trust in a God and the God who is stronger and greater than any enemy you would ever face. See, the book of Esther, the story of Esther, is a part of a larger story. It's a story about a greater king and even a greater enemy. This king is the creator of the universe, and we live in his empire. This king is the one who is worthy of our worship and he has given us good laws to follow so that we can live life to the fullest. But we've all rebelled against him and we have decided that we're going to live our lives our way and we're going to follow the lives of the enemy. But here's the thing. The enemy lies to us, but then this enemy that we have who is greater than Haman is the same enemy who loves to come before God and present to God all the reasons that it would be in God's best interest to get rid of us. This enemy, Satan, wants to kill us, destroy us, and steal from us. But yet, God is not like Xerxes. When Satan came accusing us and seeking our destruction, instead of punishing us for our rebellion, Jesus was sent in our place. Think about this. While Xerxes takes money to destroy an innocent people, God gives His only Son in order to save a guilty people. See, Jesus reversed places with us. See, the story of Mordecai, Mordecai is saved because he reversed places with Haman, but that was involuntary. Haman didn't want that. Jesus voluntarily reversed places with us. He who knew no sin became sin. Instead of giving us what we deserve, to be trampled in the dust, we get His royal robes. He is trampled and brought low so that you and I can be honored and loved. Jesus was stripped so that you and I can be clothed with His righteousness. And so King Jesus comes to us today. And He comes to you right now. And He says, give me the signet ring of your life. He comes to you and He says in this moment, if you give me control, if you will submit to me as your King... I will save you, I will rescue you, and I will wash all your sins away. See, that's who we're talking about. The true hero of the book of Esther, the true hero of the Bible, is Jesus. And there is no power of hell and no scheme of man who can ever pluck you from His hand. Trust in Him. So if you are here and you are a believer, you are a child of God, rejoice. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. Don't trade Satan's your, your life for Satan's best 30 minutes. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy that say that, that God is not enough. Don't listen to that. Keep trusting God who is going to make all things work together for good, for your good, but ultimately for His glory. But if you're here and you've been believing the lies of Satan, the king comes before you and he says, Submit to me. 
Trust in me. Look to me. So in this moment, I want to invite you to do that. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I want to give you that opportunity right now. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned, but yet our sin is no match for His grace. That if you trust Him as your Savior, you can be saved. So let's pray right now. Father in heaven, I pray for everyone that's listening to me, everyone who's watching. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving. And Lord, if there's someone here, and I'm sure there are many people, the thousands of people that are watching and listening, I pray, God, in this moment that those who do not know you as Savior would pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have done my own thing and I've listened to the lies of the enemy. But I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe that you are who you say you are. So I hand you over the signet ring of my life. I give you full control. You are my king. Forgive me of my sins. Save me, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've prayed to trust Christ as your Savior, or you want to take that next step of baptism like you've seen, or you need someone to talk to, maybe you're going through some emotional or spiritual or financial issues, I want to encourage you to take your phone out, and I want you to text to this number, 407 338 4024. That's 407-338-4024. Text your name, put your name there, and text what your decision is. I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, or I want to be baptized, or I need someone to talk to or to pray with, or whatever prayer request you have, we want to hear them today. Thank you so much, and I'm praying that God uses His Word to bring you closer to Him. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.